And now, Jesus, we come to your word. We're so thankful to have four portraits, four historical records of your life. And we'll hear someone have a hard conversation with you. They came in happy. They went away sad. May we hear you and go home comforted and joyful and strengthened and encouraged and corrected if needed. We ask in Jesus' name. You'll open your Bibles with me, please, to the Gospel of Luke. That's where we've been. That's where I would always encourage you, whatever other Bible reading you're doing, to keep reading forward through the Gospel of Luke. You'll get much more from Sunday if you hear what the Lord has to say and read it for yourself, ask questions of its meaning, talk to the God about it. And then I've got this amazing privilege of opening the Bible with my little family of faith and explaining it to you. This is good, right? We're blessed, right? Unbelievably blessed. I spoke to one of our missionaries overseas uh, before sunrise wondering whether we would have services outdoors or not, and I was mulling that over and just the latest thing you have to think about in a pandemic. And then he told me about the conditions in his own country. And I wasn't complaining in the first place, but I was enormously grateful after hearing from him. We're so blessed, folks. As a country, as a church, yes, individuals, families, sections of our church are hurting. That's always the way life goes. That's why we have to Rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who are weeping. But overall, we're blessed, we're grateful. Don't lose sight of it. In Luke chapter 18, we meet a, a man that Matthew tells us is young. Luke doesn't focus on that. Luke evidently doesn't want you to think that the conversation that Jesus had with this man had anything to do with youthful immaturity. Because both Matthew and Luke knew that this young man's problem went deeper than age. This man came to Jesus with the most important question of all. He wanted to ask Jesus about eternal life. We meet him as he's presented in Luke chapter 18. We know nothing else about him, but it's pretty easy to understand that he, like the entire nation of Israel and even foreign nations surrounding them, have been shaken by the arrival of Jesus in the world. He's going into the synagogue Saturday by Saturday, opening the Scriptures and saying things that would have been outlandish if anyone else said them. He was saying things like, this Scripture is now being fulfilled right here, right in front of you. He was healing all who came to him with any illness. He was healing people who were crippled. He was healing the blind. He was commanding disease and nature itself as if he owned them. He's doing all this to validate his claim to be the promised Messiah, not another prophet, but the very Son of God. On that claim rests our faith. If Jesus is not who he claimed to be, you're wasting your time, and I've wasted most of my life. But this young man has heard of Jesus, and he comes to him with the most important question of all, and he comes to him from a position of privilege. Matthew and Luke both want you to know that he is rich. Read with me in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18 and in verse 18. 
it says, and a ruler asked him. A ruler. In other words, we're not told specifically who he is, but he has civic authority of some kind. This means, doubtless, that he's in good with the Roman Empire. As you're going to find out, he's rich. A ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. How do you think the conversation's going so far? I would say not great, because Jesus asks a question in return. The young man, Luke doesn't say so, but Matthew does, this ruler, this wealthy, influential man with authority, asks a very polite question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Teachers dream of questions like this. This is Jesus' wheelhouse. This is actually the very thing He has come on earth to explain. This is the point of His whole teaching, and the young man's being cool about it. He's saying, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And there's no other way to think about it. There's just pushback in the response. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. I don't know this young man. All I know about him is found in these brief little stories, but Jesus knows much more about him. I think Jesus detects flattery. Have you ever had someone who once flattered you turn against you? Mark that. It's something I've learned from life. Sometimes the people who flatter you the most are the first to stab you in the back when you turn on, when you turn away. It's just the way life is. Maybe I'm sensitive to this story because pastors live in a very strange world. According to some people, we're the best people that God ever made. That's a small group, but significant. <laughs> a much larger group think we're the worst people that God ever made. Charlatans, hucksters, greedy liars. And then there's a whole bunch of people in the middle who have no idea what to do with so I'm sensitive to accusation, I'm sensitive to encouragement, and I'm sensitive to flattery. That's just pastors. That's just people who talk about Jesus. Jesus lived in that world 100% of the time. Some came with worship and praise. Others came with vile accusations, insulting everything about Jesus, including His parentage. And Jesus, who according to the Gospel of John, did not entrust himself to people because he knew what was in their hearts, reads this young man, and in the di instead of answering his question directly, instead of attacking that ball that was teed up for him so nicely, he said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Jesus begins speaking about God, and then He refers Him to God's commandments. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. If you're a Bible reader, what are these? It's not all of them, but this is from a very famous section of the Bible. What, what did Jesus just quote to Him? The Ten Commandments. Are all ten there? How many are there? Five. 
Excellent. Nine o'clock crowd, we had a little controversy. We had to count together. Okay? 10.30 crowd, maybe a little better rested, had a little more coffee. You identified five commandments right off the bat. I want you to notice something about them. All the commandments that Jesus quotes are obligations toward other people. God is not even mentioned. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Five of the Ten Commandments, but only five, and none relating to God. This is a little bit of a detour, but I promise it'll be worth it. Look with me. Hold your place and look with me in Exodus chapter 20. I want you to see all of the commandments. Exodus chapter 20 says, God spoke all these words saying, Speaking to Israel in their time and in their day, he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number one. You shall not make yourself to carved image or any likeness of anything that is, heaven, uh, that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Fourth commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Sorry, this is the fourth. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And he explains... Down to verse 12, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Those are nine of the commandments. Which did Jesus leave off? He quoted five of the six commandments that are obligations to Israel toward other people. He did not mention one. Which is it? Coveting, the last commandment. Look, please, in verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or th anything that is your neighbor's. So why did we jump over to Exodus chapter 20 to read all Ten Commandments? Go back to Luke 18, and I'll show you. Luke chapter 18, Jesus is telling this young man the law in verse 20. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Just these five, let's enter into this young man's experience as best we can. Just these five. There are ten, but Jesus quotes only five, so let's start there. How have you done with those? From the time you have the conscious use of memory, you were making your own decisions when you were a child. Let me ask you, have you always honored your mother and father? Have you ever stolen anything? Even time? See, many people somehow can avoid stealing possessions, but a lot of us steal time. We feel that we've given quite enough at the company. The boss has had enough. You've served the cause quite enough. You'll just take that three-hour lunch. 
you'll clock in or show up or say that you didn't get the email. You'll just do something to even it up just a little bit. And if you're actually truly conscious and sensitive, if you look at it from their perspective, you're stealing. What about adultery? Many people manage to avoid this sin. But Jesus comes along and says, the law says, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, if a man looks at a woman to lust for her in his heart, he's already committed adultery in his heart. Many people avoid the sin of murder, but Jesus says, if you're angry enough with your brother to condemn him and call him a fool, you've committed murder in the heart. Have you ever wished somebody were dead? Have you ever wished anybody harm? Do you remember when you were started going through adolescence and people started to be especially beautiful to you? Do you remember looking on them, on the body God gave them as one of God's children and desiring that for yourself? According to Jesus, that's adultery in the heart. In other words, even if you evaluate these five commandments, if we sit with them quietly, we reflect that God's character is perfect. He doesn't do any of these things. He's not associated with evil or injustice in any way, and there's not a single person on earth who can look at the whole of God's law and say, I'm good. I've never stolen. I've never lied. I've always given honor to those whom it is due. I've always been pure, not only with my body, but also with my mind. There's not a person alive who can sit in front of God's law and call themselves God's equal, saying, my character, my choices, my emotions, my decisions are just like His. That's the standard. That's why it goes on to say in Exodus chapter 20 that the people were afraid. This is a God of immeasurable, unimaginably good, high and holy justice and righteousness and goodness. But this young man, well, he's got a different perspective on it. Look back in verse 20. Jesus said to him, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said... All these I have kept from my youth. Do you believe him? Do you believe this is the first flawless man to live in addition to Jesus? He thinks he is. That's the key. I've been talking to you about standards because they're so important to Luke's gospel in this section. This young man has heard God's standard recorded in God's word. He's heard these commandments. He's committed them to memory. And he walks through life thinking he's doing pretty well. But Jesus has always knows better. Look at verse 22. When Jesus heard this, I love that little detail. Listen, Jesus is so good. He's so kind. He listens to people. He listens to your objections. He listens to your questions. He loves to hear your confession. He loves to hear your praise. Even though Jesus knows everything about this young man and even though he knows everything about you, he's still listening. It's a relationship. He's actually interacting with this young man. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Well, this is exciting because what is the man's question? How do I have what? Eternal life. And Jesus says, don't call me good. God's good. 
In fact, you know what God said. Here's five commandments to remind you of what God said. And the young man said, good, that's great, good news. I've done all of that from the time I turned 13. Because that is likely when he would have been initiated into adulthood in his culture. He hasn't committed adultery. He hasn't stolen. He hasn't lied. He hasn't done anything but obey his mother and his father from the age of 13 forward. Thank you for telling me this. I can tell I'm on the right path. Jesus says just one more thing, and it should have been exciting because he's asking about eternal life, and Jesus says just one more detail. If I told you that you only had to do one simple thing to get a billion dollars, would that be interesting to you? This is much more important than a billion dollars. This is eternal life. What is it? One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Listen, don't miss it. And come follow me. What do you think he's going to do? Remember what he called Jesus when he began the conversation. The rich ruler came to Jesus and he called him something. He gave him a title and he gave him a compliment. What did he call him? Good teacher. Now the teacher's teaching. To this point, he's only been reminding and reviewing. Now he's teaching. Now I'm going to answer your question. You claim to have kept the five obligations you have toward other people. Let me remind you of the sixth. The one commandment Jesus left off, do not covet. He says, sell what you have. Give it to the poor around you. And freeing yourself from all that earthly concern of ruling over other people and managing your wealth, here's what you do. You come and follow me. What's the reaction going to be? You already know. Verse 23, but when he heard these things, he became what? Very sad because he was extremely rich. The young man, the gospel says, went away sad literally turning his back on Jesus. Why? Because he falsely believed that he had kept five commandments. Jesus exposed his heart that he was breaking the final commandment every day of his life. He was covetous. He didn't go every day through any sense probably of desiring what somebody else had because he already had it. It's a rule in life that men who are wealthy and powerful tend to get almost anything else they want along with money and power. His wife is not mentioned, but if he's a married man, and he almost certainly would have been in this culture, she is almost without exception. We can say with confidence if he were married, she would be one of the most desirable and attractive and dignified women in his culture. He has everything. Life is a banquet and a feast to him. Jesus says, get rid of it. Give it to the poor, and you come and follow me. You say, I'm a good teacher. Here's your first lesson. Get rid of the things you love and come with me, and we'll see what happens. And the young man was very sad. And he made a decision that was controlled by money. He made a decision that the things he had were more important than Jesus. 
See, he actually was covetous because as a wealthy man, perhaps he didn't desire what belonged to anybody else because what he had was already better. But he discovered covetousness in his heart because he could not imagine getting rid of it and giving it to someone else. The picture of himself being poor, of himself no longer being influential, walking away from the seats of power and following Jesus, this strange itinerant preacher who once told his disciples he had no place to stay and no place to rest. Jesus is just asking too much. And he's going to walk away and Jesus is going to turn to those who who survived the teaching and remained there. And he explained what just happened. Don't miss it. It's huge. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Did you catch that? You say, well, good thing I'm not rich. Can I tell you something by... Everything is relative in this world, but living in the 21st century in coastal Orange County by historic standards and almost certainly from God's point of view, yes, we all are. We're a very diverse congregation. We have people of all walks of life and all kinds of socioeconomic conditions. We have the poor in this congregation as well, but for the vast majority of us, we're comfy. From the world's point of view, we've become accustomed to things. In fact, when those things are taken away, we miss them dearly. We didn't know how good we had it until we start losing them. And Jesus says something alarming. This young man exposes that he's missed one of the commandments. He actually is covetous. He actually does love money. He loves money so much that maybe Jesus isn't such a good teacher after all. Maybe he doesn't have quite as much to teach as he once thought. The question was, what do I have to do to have eternal life? He has his answer and he walks away without putting it into practice. And Jesus explains something fundamental. He's not talking about this young man anymore. He's explaining what happened in the heart of that young man and what made him take the decision that he did. What Jesus said next is true for all time. It is hard for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus says, it's easier to get a camel through the eye of a needle than for a rich man or a rich woman to be saved. And maybe you grew up like I did with Bible teachers who made stuff up sometimes who explained this verse away by saying that there was a gate that they had to make a camel kneel kneel down to crawl through. Anybody ever hear that? Yes, okay, there you are. I apologize for that teaching. I never said it myself. I discovered early on it was bogus. Here's what it actually means. Jesus is saying it's actually easier to get a camel that would stand about this tall through the eye of a needle. It's very hard for people who have money and comfort in this world to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because money's so lovable. Because if Jesus ever comes and talks to us about our wealth, he grows far less interesting. He becomes extreme. He becomes impractical. 
Why are the poor closer to the kingdom of God? Not because they've sinned less, but I can tell you this from Scripture and also from experience. Not being poor, but growing up among the poor outside of the United States, here is the difference. Human nature is this. As long as you have health and wealth, you tend to trust it. And you tend to believe that your wealth and your ability can solve your problems and that the money and the relationships that it can bring around you can help you win. The people who never have that luxury are the poor, who having nothing to cling to in this life and nothing them holding them here, in my experience for life, are much quicker to hear of God's commands and God's demands and of a better life somewhere because life here, frankly, is not that good. Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke and also at length in the Gospel of Matthew that no one could serve two masters, that you can't serve both money and God, that what his disciples should be doing is not piling it up on earth, but storing it up in heaven. He told this young man, if you've noticed, his invitation was not merely to give the stuff away on earth. Look at verse 22 again. One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have what? Treasure in heaven. You use your earthly money for earthly good here, and you come and follow me. You'll have a reward in heaven someday. You'll have me and the reward that I will give you. The man heard that, considered and imagined his own poverty. Imagine the poor walking away with his belongings. Imagine his social standard brought down to the ground. Imagine his influence as a ruler disappearing. Imagine his home life and his table changing and went away sad because he loved money. Here's the point of this story. And it shook the disciples. Look with me please now in verse 26. Those who heard it said then who can be saved? Well, that's a weird question. Why would they ask that? They have believed the very common cultural idea that if you're wealthy in this world, it must be that God is favoring you and blessing you. They had read the Proverbs that commend hard work and explained that the blessing of God favors the righteous and that God will prosper them. The disciples are completely blown away. Then who can be saved? Don't miss Jesus' answer. But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Wow. I want you to hear that if you're comfy in this life. If you have money in the bank and a nice place to live and you're a Christian, it's a miracle. Did you hear that? Jesus says that the power of money is so compelling, wealth is so attractive, that the main thing it does to people is make people serve money and serve wealth instead of listening to God and serving Him. It's amazing. Please hear that. If you have comfort materially in this world, if you wake up in the morning, look around your house, look at your belongings and consider yourself blessed and you're a Christian, you're a miracle. It took God to open your heart to tenderize you, 
to make you esteem that things mattered more in eternity than matter on this earth. And Peter, well, Peter seems to ask a very self-centered question. Verse 28, and Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. It's a really interesting twist in the story. Peter's saying, what about us? We saw a wealthy man walk away from you. Lord, what about us? I don't know if you remember, but we were fishermen, and you called us away from our way of living, and some of us literally dropped the nets and left our family behind. We've left our homes. We're far from home. We've followed you. What about us? Look at verse 29. Here's a promise. He said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. What's this mean, church? Let me be really clear. If you love money or anything on this earth more than you love God, you'll lose all of it. You'll waste your life. There are some of you, perhaps, I don't know, this is such a strange environment, I can't even see who's here. People sit literally at 180 degrees around me. It's the strangest speaking experience I've ever had. Happy you're here. I'm just telling you, it's difficult to even know Sunday to Sunday in a pandemic who's listening. But I say to all of you in the tent, in the canopies, over there, on the playground, online, wherever you are. If you love anything more than Jesus, you'll lose everything. And Jesus says the love of money is so compelling that people tend to serve it. That you'll have money, even if you're a Christian, even if you're one of those miracles that has money and trusted Jesus anyway. If God opened your heart to the realization that money and success and even ruling is not enough and you trusted Jesus with your life and asked Him to forgive your sins, you're a miracle. And Peter seems to ask a very self-interested, selfish question. He says, Lord, we see Him walking away without you. He's headed toward His cash. He's going home to His family. He's going to enjoy the good life for as long as He can what about us? We left what life we had. We're here with you. And Jesus says, anyone who leaves anything for my sake will have it many times over in this life and eternal life in the next. What did he mean? And this is huge for our church. If you trust Christ, you will have everything. He will welcome you into a bigger family than the one you were born into. Many people do not trust Christ in our increasingly secular society because to do so is to pay a cost with family, to pay a cost at work and at school. You identify with Jesus, you are labeled in increasingly in our society as an extremist, as an intolerant bigot, as someone who is delusional and believes in some kind of magical God in the sky who listens to you, if you make the audacious claim that you believe the Scriptures, that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the grave to give you eternal life, 
and that when you open the Bible, God speaks to you through His Word, and when you pray, the God who made the world and everything in it listens to you as if you were His own child, that's going to put you in an increasingly small and an increasingly rejected community. But Jesus says, if following me costs you things on earth, you'll be welcomed into a bigger family. Because this is our family. I've got brothers and sisters who are poor and rich from dozens of nations across the earth. They are my family. They are my brothers and they are my sisters. We're sharing this life together and we're going to enjoy our Heavenly Father's home someday together. All of these blessings on earth, all of God's provision on earth, and eternal life to come. The point of this story is simple. Following Jesus means acting on the belief that He can give you more than this world offers. Please hear that. If you are not a Christian, if you are loving anything or anyone more than your loving Christ, to follow Jesus means not intellectual agreement, not taking Him as a philosopher or a particularly good TED Talk giver who would have been amazing on the TED Talk circuit. It means trusting Him personally that He can give you in this life and in the next more than you could ever have if you hold on to the things, whatever it is that this world offers you. That's the point of the conversation with the rich young ruler. A final question, and I'm done. If money is this compelling, if wealth is this seductive, what are Christians to do? Because Jesus warned his disciples, you can't serve God and money. In other words, money is lovable. I don't know if you've noticed. It's easy to listen to money. It's easy to make decisions to get more of it, to save more of it. What are Christians to do in view of the fact that money is so lovable, so powerful, that it will call out to you for the rest of your life for your attention and your allegiance? Two simple things to put this into practice, to actually act on the belief, if you're a Christian, that Jesus matters more than money. For those I want you to look in your bulletin to instructions to Paul that Paul gave to a young Timothy named to a young pastor named Timothy. In 1 Timothy Paul wrote a letter to a young pastor to an economically diverse congregation that including the wealthy and the comfortable among them and he told them in the echoing the teaching of Jesus how to instruct Christians to act on the belief that Jesus is the one who can give more than the world offers. 1 Timothy chapter 6, we'll read these verses together and we'll be through. 1 Timothy 6, 8 through 10. Will you read this with me, please? The Bible says, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Number one, we don't allow the love of money to weaken our love for Jesus. That's how we put into practice the idea that Jesus offers more and will give more than this world ever could.
We don't allow the love of money to weaken our love and our allegiance for Him. Note the warning. Paul says, if you have the basics covered, be content. Because there are others who, craving money, loving money, have actually wandered away from the faith. They have shipwrecked themselves. They have shot themselves through with all kinds of pain because they desired to be rich. Desiring money more than Christ, they lost everything, including Christ Himself. Read now 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 to 19. Here is direct instruction for those who are comfortable in the world, for those who are rich in this age. Read with me 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. The Bible says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Here's your marching orders. Ready? They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul tells the rich, tell them not to trust it. Tell them to set their hope on God who will never fail them, not on the money that they will eventually lose if only in death. Tell them to use that money to do good, to store up treasure for themselves, to build a foundation in the life which is to come. In other words, number two, first, we don't let money weaken our love for Jesus, and number two, we use earthly money to store up heavenly treasures. Whatever money you have, whether it's great or small, if you will see yourself as a member of God's family and understand that He really will provide for you and that the issue is not content, the issue is not wealth, the issue is contentment. And if you will turn with what little or much God has given you and use it for eternal purposes, Jesus says, you'll have blessing on this earth and an eternal reward that will not be taken from you. Martin Luther, the reformer, said it this way, I have held many things in my hands, and I have lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. Simple, Christian. It's not easy, but it's simple. If you never allow Jesus to disagree with you and challenge you, you're not really following Jesus. You're following your own counsel. This is a hard word. It was a hard word in the first century. It's maybe a harder word in the 21st century because we've built a culture, we've built a civilization, we've built an economy on constant acquisition that desires comfort and ease more than anything else. We've built a culture where five cars in the drive through line is too much. We've built a culture based on impatience and acquisition, on continuous improvement, on pundits that lament the destruction of our society if every succeeding generation doesn't do better than the last. Into all of that, please listen to Jesus instead. Hear Jesus telling you that money is a master, and He will call out for your allegiance. He will try to shout over the voice of God to keep you away from Christ, and once you start following Christ, money won't stop talking to you. And what you are to do if you don't know Christ is to forsake the love of anything that would keep you from Him. 
to understand that Jesus will give you eternal life, a family of faith that is greater and more wonderful than you could ever imagine, that He will provide for your basic needs and that He can use your meager giving, your meager talents to do good here on earth, and that will store up for you a reward in heaven. So your great challenge first is, if you don't know Jesus, to turn away from anything that is competing with Him and entrust yourself to Him as Savior. And if you do know Him, to resist the allegiance, to resist the lure of money every day of your life by being, being generous and doing good instead with whatever He gives you, great or small, knowing that God in His goodness will store up a reward for you in heaven. It's other words, it's acting on the simple belief that Jesus will give you more than this world could ever offer. Let's pray together. Lord, I don't even know, Lord, who hears these sermons, who reads these scriptures. We know that people watch from all over the country and all over the world. So I pray right now that you would give grace to somebody who doesn't know you to trust you and be saved this morning. Quick question. Have you trusted Christ as your Savior or is your heart divided? Is your allegiance still up for grabs? If you've loved anything or anyone and put them in place of Jesus, I'm inviting you now to believe the good news that He died to cover your sins and to ask Him to save you. And if you do that, to let us know. Send me an email or use this. Use our text system that's mentioned in your bulletin and let us know that you've trusted Christ today. And Christians, I'm guessing on a day like this and conditions like this, the majority of those who came in person are already trying to follow Jesus. I'm telling you, the call of money never stops. The comfort of the people you've known to whom you dare not speak of Christ because you fear their rejection, that fear never goes away. The question is, who will have your heart? Who will have your confidence? On whose word will you act? Will you obey fear on the one hand or comfort on the other? Or will you risk it for Christ? Will you be generous for Christ so that the kingdom of God expands and the good news is heard? You won't lose. Luther was right. Anything given to God will be yours forever. That's Jesus' point. You can't outgive him. You can't outlove him. You can't outtrust him. Anything given for the sake of Christ and the sake of the kingdom will be yours many time over in this life and in the life to come. So Christian, please don't waste your life. Act on the teaching that Jesus will disappoint no one. That Jesus will take all your trust, all your giving, all your love, all your talent, everything offered to him He'll use it for eternal good, give you treasure in heaven. Father, dismiss us with the confidence that your son told us the truth. Help us not be shaped by this culture, which lures us and beckons to us with comfort and ease and things, Lord, that will soon be taken from us anyway. Help us instead live always for you. For we have gone wrong, Lord, and become stingy for we have succumbed to the fear of other people. Forgive those sins and help us fall in step with you. Do what you ask and follow you, I pray. And Crosspoint said, 
Amen. God bless you folks. Love you. Thank you for coming on this windy, windy day. God bless. Talk to you soon.